Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 27th, 2023, a Friday earlier today. I did a show on a new book by the historian and former New York Times uh, foreign correspondent, Philip Taubman, uh, in the Nation Service, uh, a book about the life and times of the former Secretary of State, George P. Schultz. It's a book about a life dedicated to a certain kind of service, bureaucratic, political, corporate, for better or worse. Uh, George uh, Pratt Schultz was an example, I think, of um, a classic American uh, power man of the 20th century. Today, we're going to be looking at a, a quite different kind of service. Uh, my guest is Jane Olson. Uh, she is a humanitarian, a woman who's dedicated much of her life to humanity in general. She's worked with uh, Human Rights Watch, for example, many other groups. She's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, uh, which have acknowledged her remarkable work. And she has a new book out, World Citizen, Journey of a Humanitarian. Uh, Jane is joining us from her home in Pasadena, California. Uh, Jane, I don't want to compare you with George Schultz. I mean, that's obviously slightly absurd. But do you see your life and work in service of something or other? Well, in two words, peace and justice. Yes, I, I do. But it, it's not like I planned to do that. It's just the path that I followed. Invitations came to me. Um, the first one, a very profound and life-changing invitation to go down to Nicaragua in 1984 during the Contra Wars and be a witness to what was happening on the ground there, to meet people, drive around the country, um, examine areas that our government said were pose, posing great uh, threat to our freedom and democracy in America. Um, I went with a group from my church and that sort of led to a life that um, followed one invitation after another um, journeys into war zones and places of extreme poverty and disease. And um, yes, I am a humanitarian. I'm, I'm claiming it because I, I really am an advocate for um, peace and justice around the world. And I think that's, I, my book is really telling the story of people that I've met. Your book is the story of your life in many ways. It's a memoir. Do you, I know this is a rather silly question, but um, you grew up in rural Iowa. If, if, if you had, as a, as a girl, uh, learned about your life and, and what happened as a world citizen, what kind of reaction do you think you would have had? Did you have any inkling of yourself your life as a kind of humanitarian calling when you were growing up in rural Iowa? Not really, but I would say um, 
I always defended uh, people that were being victimized. You know, bullies beating up kids on the playground, even as a little girl, I would run into that. Um, I think that I've always um, been sensitive to pain in others. I've always um, had a great curiosity about the world. So in some ways, it's not a surprise. But I think probably the biggest factor is that um, my role model when I was a child was Eleanor Roosevelt. And I watched her, you know, on um, the newsreels that we saw when we went to the movies on Saturday mornings, newsreels that were black and white and flickery, uh, scenes of battle zones in the Korean War, and then Eleanor Roosevelt would come on. And for a young girl, there weren't a lot of female ro role models, and she certainly was one. She went into all the dark and dangerous places, always um, advocating and speaking on behalf of the most vulnerable people and becoming a voice for the conscious of the nation. She was my, and remains my role model. It's funny you bring up uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, earlier this week, I did a show with the historian Zachary Shaw. He has a new book out about the morality of America's behavior during the Second World War, uh, a book called This Is Not Who We Are, America's Struggle Between Vengeance and Virtue. And he does in the book talk about FDR and Eleanor. And we talked about how Eleanor was his conscience. Do you think that American history, American culture is always this struggle between vengeance and virtue. I mean, every culture, I guess, has a little bit of it, but there's something there's something about America in which goodness and evil seem to coexist and be in perpetual conflict. Well, I think that is true. And I certainly saw that when I went into Central America to Nicaragua and El Salvador during the Contra Wars, I, I really saw that what our government was telling us about the evil being perpetuated by this communist revolutionaries, the Sandinistas, was at, at the very least highly exaggerated and in many cases simply not true. The other example of that, of course, is a war in Vietnam. And, one of my last chapters is about going into Vietnam with a landmine survivors group. And um, a member of our party who went incognito in the beginning uh, asked if he could join us because his daughter was going with us, was a former secretary of the US Air Force, Robert Channing Siemens Jr. He had never been to North Vietnam. And then when his daughter told him she was going with this humanitarian organization, he asked if he could join us. And I think that's a very, very profound chapter. He'd only seen uh, Hanoi through infrared satellite pictures. And here he was visiting um, the lake where John McCain's plane went down, going to the presidential palace and seeing that Ho Chi Minh had lived in a humble cottage and meeting the Vietnamese people who were so forgiving and and so um, welcoming to Americans. They called it, of course, their American war. And would you think of the devastation that we wrecked on that country? And this man who was traveling with us was ordering many of these bombing raids. And um, I, I think never could you imagine a scene that would be more um, exemplary of, of the question you would just posed. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Again, um, Philip Taubman now is working on a biography of Robert McNamara, of course, was in many ways responsible for that bombing. Mm -hmm. Schultz himself was involved as Secretary of State in the Reagan administration for American policy in Nicaragua against the Contras. Your work is unavoidably political. One can't be a humanitarian without being political, can one? Uh, you're bound to upset people. You can't make everybody happy, Jane, can you? Well, if you want to make a difference, you have to be an advocate and you have to speak in, to people um, who are in a position to make real change, the policymakers. So, of course, I had to be a bit cheeky. Um, but, you know, I wasn't going by myself. I was going with Human Rights Watch, um, the Women's Refugee Commission of the International Rescue Committee, Landmine Survivors Network, and many other humanitarian organizations. And they all had powerful platforms. So, um, yes, advocacy was a big part of it. But I was witnessing and taking photographs. My book is full of photographs that can't be denied. Um, and collecting stories of survivors, survivors of war primarily, um, and coming back and, and sharing those stories. And they, um, they had to move people um, when, when you understand the humanity of the victim. So Jane, yes, I was I, a strong I, I, advocate. Yeah, I like the fact that you, 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 you uh, associate being a strong advocate with being a bit cheeky. Maybe that could have been the title of the book too, A Bit Cheeky. Um, where'd you get that cheekiness from? Is it as a woman, as an Iowan, as a Christian, as an American? Where do you think it comes from? All of the above. <laughs> I think, um, you know, I grew up in the generation of women um, where doors of... Uh, higher education were not really open to us. You had to be um, the rare ex exception. My husband went to law school at the University of Michigan and there were six women and some 400 men in his class. So um, you have to be a bit cheeky about that. And, you know, I think our, my daughter's generations are the beneficiaries, but um, I always felt that um, my mother's advice uh, was very wise. She said, be who you are, do what you can, and use what you have. And, you know, I always, um, what I had was, after traveling to um, all of these countries, what I had was irrefutable evidence of the uh, pain and suffering, um, and also of the humanity and beauty of the people that I was meeting, the survivors. So, you, you know, I use those stories well. You've worked in many different areas. You're not just focusing on the consequences of um, American foreign policy in Nicaragua or Vietnam. You've, you're associated with the work you've done on behalf of HIV victims in, in Malawi. You've spent a lot of time, you spent a lot of time in Bosnia. You have a, a section, a memorable section in the book on that. How, how did you, or how do you select the journeys you make as a humanitarian, as a world citizen. I mean, you once you, you became quite well known in this area, I assume you got emails, letters, telephone calls all the time asking you to come to see what was happening in, 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 in one country or another. 
Yes, and it's always about the people. I mean, I, I wanted to um, travel with organizations uh, that I was involved with. So I chaired the board of many of these organizations. I was a board member and a very active volunteer for years. I knew the people I was traveling with. That's very important because I needed to know their mission. I needed to trust their, um, their MO, how they related to people, you know, how they would use the information once they got back. So I was very selective about the organizations that I traveled with, first of all. And um, I felt very gifted by the invitations. Some of them, some of these trips were extremely difficult, especially seeing uh, the poverty and disease in remote parts of Africa um, just about took me down. So, Are there some trips you regret taking and others that you regret not taking in your career as a humanitarian? What a good question. I think uh, there are none that I regret taking. One of the hardest for me was going into Uganda, into Northern Uganda um, during the, the worst violence being and death being perpetrated by the Lord's Resistance Army and meeting the survivors of that, you know, in one- Was this through the Rwanda stuff or this is Uganda or that connect? You, Uganda. I've, right. I've gone to, I went to Rwanda. I know several you've done times. a lot of work in Rwanda too. Yeah. Yes. Yes. In fact, uh, my favorite chapter in the book is about the Gachacha trials, justice on the grass in Rwanda. Uh, that was a trip with human rights watch at the time I was chairing the board. That was um, extraordinary. And uh, if you read nothing else, read that chapter. But I think going into Uganda, which is North of Rwanda was um one of the most painful experiences I've had because at the time I had um, four grandsons. I now have eight grandsons all in college. But at the time um, I was meeting with boys, teenage boys who had been kidnapped, forced to kill their families, burn their, their homes, their huts, and travel with Joseph Comey and the Lord's Resistance Army for months and sometimes years at a time forced to kill, uh, mutilate, I mean, just some of the, the most horrendous war um, crimes against children you can imagine. And uh, meeting with them, many of them had lost their souls. They'd certainly lost their childhood. And um, as a grandmother of boys, um, I, it just absolutely broke my heart. But I also felt that it was one of the most effective uh, journeys and experiences that I've had because just sitting with these boys who were so crippled with, uh, with guilt and their whole um, memory of life was killing and mayhem and, and being forced to march and, and the girls to serve as sex slaves to the militia. It, it was just terrible. But when you see that kind of abuse against children it makes you question um, the survival of humanity on the planet that any monster could, could do that to innocent children. So, so how did that affect your, your, your spirituality, your, your faith? I mean, Conrad, of course, wrote Heart of Darkness. Many journalists and writers have gone to, to these sorts of places and seen unimaginable cruelty. How, how did that change your conception of the human condition? Well, 
I have a very um, deep faith, and it's not been shaken. If anything, it's it's stronger. But um, and I am a Christian, but I'm an activist. And um, my first trip actually was uh, uh, the invitation came from my church. I, I have been a member since 1968 of All Saints Episcopal Church in Pasadena, which, like Riverside Church in New York, is renowned for its peace and justice activism and effectiveness and for taking on the really, really tough, tough issues, domestic as well as international. And um, I think if I had not been grounded in that faith with a community behind me, um, I might carry a lot more trauma. You know, as it is, um, the way I've dealt with um, many of the horrors that I've experienced is by talking about it. I think the best uh, remedy for what might become PTSD is to, is to share your experience and share your stories. But always, Andrew, and um, you know, the, uh, the term cockeyed optimist, always I looked for hope. I looked for the spirit in the in the victims um, and what it would take to help them um, survive and carry on with their lives and and become effective members of families and communities and not carry it on. You know, as we see in this country, so much of the violence being perpetrated, uh, mass killings and, and so on, and the hate crimes we're seeing, many of the perpetrators were victims themselves. Um, little boys who were beaten by their fathers, perhaps. And that cycle continues. So trying to break that cycle is uh, one of the things I always focused on and trying to find the hope and the spirit in the other person and the victim. I think it helped to be a mother, a grandmother, to travel as a woman because I'm not threatening. Um, and I think uh, what I found is that um, a lap and two arms are kind of the most healing thing in the world when someone is in such pain. And I did hold a lot of a lot of people, especially the children. And when I talked to Zachary Shaw, we talked about the American decision to drop the atomic bomb on uh, Hiroshima. I told him I'd visited there. I'd also been to Auschwitz, both deeply moving events in my life. Uh, but talking to you, I'm beginning to feel as if I probably... We shouldn't be worrying about um, Hiroshima or Auschwitz. We should be looking at what's happening today. What's your sense of, it almost seems to be a, a tourist business now in human suffering around the world. Should people stop going to, um, stop going to places where suffering had been perpetuated? had been perpetuated and focus only where it is now being perpetrated? I think we always need to remember, you know, the importance of the Nuremberg trials was that, you know, we had to face um, all of the, the horrors. And, you know, we said after the Holocaust of World War II, never again. Well, we had some of the um, worst genocides following that. Cambodia certainly was absolutely horrendous. I mean, it was hard to see any humanity in that. And, and then Rwanda, which I got very involved with. Um, and of course, the former Yugoslavia did not, 
I'm not sure that it reached the, the legal international definition of genocide, but it certainly was um, killing and devastation focused on a particular um, population, the ethnic, ethnic uh, Muslims of, of Bosnia, the ethnic cleansing of Bosnia and the former Yugoslavia. Um, I think it was much more of a, a land grab for Bosnian Muslims who weren't even religious. They hadn't practiced their religion and under Soviet uh, control all those years, nobody was allowed to practice religion. They didn't even know what being a Muslim meant. They were descendants of the Ottoman Empire and yet they were killed in vast numbers. Um, so that's, I think I became quite obsessed with that. Um, the war in the former Yugoslavia, as you mentioned, I have several chapters on that because um, it was so you couldn't really tell the victim from the perpetrator. They all looked alike. Mm, I lived in uh, Sarajevo in uh, between uh, 83 and 84. And ba back then it was unimaginable. You know, there's a big debate, Jane, amongst historians and I guess humanitarians about whether the world's becoming a better place. Um, some people have used data to prove that there is fewer wars, fewer murders. But when you look at recent wars, we've done shows on Syria in particular, and now, of course, in Ukraine, it seems as if, you know, you mentioned before about Nuremberg and this will never happen again, uh, but it's continuing to happen. It's happening as we speak in Ukraine. What's your reading of history? Do you share MLK's uh, optimism about the arc of human justice? I absolutely do. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that statement because um, I think love is the most powerful energy in the universe. And eventually, um, I do think that uh, we will begin to recognize as humanity, as hum human beings, that we're really all one, that our fate is um, definitely connected. I think the coronavirus the COVID-19 pandemic taught us that, that we're not safe unless everyone's safe, you know, unless everyone um, gets vaccines and is protected against the virus, we're not safe. That, that's a very huge message. And I think the same is true when it comes to war and devastation. The other thing that is showing us our oneness is the global climate crisis. You know, the young people are leading this existential um, drive to save the planet, save the planet from all life, for all life, because uh, we're seeing that climactic devastation and extremes of weather are happening all over the world. And where what I saw in um, northern Ghana, where you can't imagine human beings can live there, it's just such a horrendous, uh, unfriendly environment. Um, you know, we're seeing in California, places that um, used to be green and, and um, fertile are now desert land. And that's, you know, that pace is, is uh, I think, accelerating. So I think when you have things like that, um, that affect all people, like a, a viral pandemic and like a um, climatic change, rapid climactic change, it does get your attention and make you realize that we're all in this together. You know, the astronaut phrase, spaceship Earth, we need to see it that way. 
and um, you know, plants and animals um, are under our care. We as human beings, it's on us. It certainly is, Jane. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you've ever met Greta Thunberg. I wouldn't be surprised if you had. Um, yeah. Certainly, uh, you're familiar with her work. She is very impatient with international organizations. She famously talks about the blah, blah, blah of the UN. My sense is that you might be a bit cheeky and sensitive and all the rest of it, but you also don't suffer fools easily. You're probably pretty impatient. You work with a lot of these international rights groups, Human Rights Watch, uh, Landmine Survivors Network, many other groups, you're on their board, you're probably involved with fundraising. I'm sure you've done a lot of work with the United Nations. Do you sometimes get impatient with these large bureaucracies? How can we make them more effective? How can we reduce the blah, 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 and actually uh, enable them to, to get stuff done? Well, I love Greta. And I think um, she has mobilized young people. As I mentioned, I have eight grandsons who are all college age. I, I think, and I've been speaking to a lot of um, colleges and even I was down at USC yesterday, also high schools, because um, I believe in this generation, they see themselves as world citizens. You know, they have, they're growing up in um, diversified classrooms and communities. I grew up in Denison, Iowa, that was all white. We didn't have a single black family. And um, they understand they're part of a, a global community because they're connected via the internet um, and they're communicating. You know, when I was traveling in all these war zones and remote places, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have the internet. I would send my reports back when I could find a hotel with elect electricity and a fax machine, I would handwrite reports and send them back to New York on, on fax paper. <laughs> so it's a very different, um, I think, um, opportunity that young people have to communicate. And, uh, and I, they don't have to be cheeky activists like Greta, but I think they, um, they understand that um, we've left them with uh, my generation I've left them with a lot of work to do to um, literally save the planet, to save all life. Um, and they get it. So I think they are impatient. And, um, and I think it's what we're going to hear from them is uh, lead in the right direction or get out of the way. So you've, you've conveniently sidestepped my question on large humanitarian bureaucracies? How do we make them more effective uh, and perhaps better at getting their messages across? Well, um, we've made a lot of compromises along the way. You know, start with the United Nations. Coming out of World War II, and of course my heroine, Eleanor Roosevelt, was very in, involved in the establishment of the United Nations. But setting up the Security Council with permanent members who each have the ability and right to um, veto anything is kind of a non-starter because the Cold War followed and you know there's always going to be competition between nations. Um, I, I think the United Nations remains the best hope of the world but we have to reform the Security Council and um, 
this year, by the way, is um, the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I always, I happen to have this little book. Yeah, and Eleanor wrote it, didn't she? Eleanor was very much involved with the articles. I put all of the articles from the Universal Declaration in the back of my book. The whole document is there, and it's on my website worldcitizenthebook.com and can be um, ordered in a, um, a form that is, you can fold and make it into a booklet. I carried this all over the world. I always had you know, the UN Association here in Pasadena would get me copies and, and in, um, translated into languages of the places I was going. And I always carried that. I carried a photograph of my family, my grandsons, and the Universal Declaration gave it out everywhere. We need to celebrate um, the Universal Declaration this, this year, 2023, the 75th anniversary. And um, I've, I've given a lot of speeches, by the way, Andrew, where I have taken an article, like Article 15, I read what the article is, and then I'll tell a story about the consequences of the violation of that law that I've seen you know, in different countries. Uh, it's been an effective way to promote uh, human rights law. And um, I've always thought that storytelling is, is effective and memorable, but um, you're right. It's, it's concerning that the blah, blah, blah goes on and nothing gets done and conflict arises. Um, sometimes it's just, conversational conflict, but it's really hard to get agreement um, on just the basic tenet of human rights around the world. So we have to keep on keeping on though. We can't give up. I'm always, always an optimist. Always an optimist, but you know, some of the stories, Jane, are so terrible. I did a show uh, last year with Sally Hayden, a very good uh, young Irish journalist, She's written a book about um, uh, exposing the, the 21st century slave trade on the shores of the Mediterranean, the, the crisis of uh, refugees. Mm -hmm. This stuff is so shocking. I mean, I didn't know much about it before reading her book and talking to her. I don't know what, again, I, maybe I'm repeating myself here in this question, but what have we learned? How can we allow, we being the international community, the United Nations, um, governments around the world in North Africa and, and, and Southern Europe, how can they allow the reappearance of the slave trade in 2022? I'm speechless because it is, it is so true, but you know, we're seeing, you know, when I was in college uh, in the 1960s, I had a history professor who told the, my class that in our lifetimes, we were going to see a massive migration from the global south to the global north. And he said there will be um, huge numbers of, of refugees and immigrants. Some will be fleeing war and conflict, others climate change but it will happen in your lifetimes and start thinking now about what you want to do about that. He was, he was um, I thought that was a pretty profound observation and it is happening. 
So, you know, you go to um, Greece and Italy and some of the um, southernmost um, parts of Europe on the Mediterranean, and they're having an enormous problem. I mean, we've seen boats loaded with 400 people, small boats. It's, they're coming from Haiti. They're coming from um, West Africa, all over. And, of course, on our borders, I went to Nicaragua in um, 1984 because we had a massive um, invasion. Invasion and is a, not a kind word, but it was happening across our borders of asylum seekers and and immigrants um, fleeing that war in Central America. It's happened again. You know, certainly during the Trump administration, we were quite well aware of um, the, the huge. Um, masses of people traveling from south to north. And I think um, how we receive them, how we process them, you know, in a legal and humane way, um, it, it, it's kind of an overwhelming problem, but we have to do the, the work of, of protecting vulnerable people especially in countries where if they're sent back, they're gonna be killed, no question about it. And that's certainly many places in Latin America now. Um, but Haiti has become unlivable. You know, it is just completely overrun with criminal gangs and violence and people are fleeing out of absolute desperation. So it's not just in Europe, it's also here. And um, I, th I think I felt, um, an urgency to writing my book because um, it's so easy to just other people just to say, um, you know, you dehumanize people by stereotyping them. And so many asylum seekers and immigrants are, are uh, dismissed as criminals. We're putting, we're putting asylum seekers into jails. There are enormous prisons in Southern California where we are warehousing asylum seekers, immigrants. And they are doing some labor for a dollar a day. I've, I've been in those prisons and I've seen it. Um, I think it's, we have to face it. And the first, I think the first most important thing is to understand that um, there, but by the grace of God, go I. It's the, um, you know, the sort of luck of where you're born, of what you experience, but we're all humanitarians. We all have a right to life and liberty. And, you know, we're facing labor shortages in this country. I think um, it's not such an easy thing to train people up, but there are certainly jobs available and, and labor needed. We have to figure out a way to process people um, give them a pathway to citizenship and give them um, some dignified work to do. Jane, let's end um, with some advice from you to our audience. A lot of people will be reading this book, World Citizen, Journeys of a Humanitarian. It's just out. A lot of people are going to be enormously inspired by you, just as you were inspired by Eleanor Roosevelt. But a lot of people will also be nervous. They'll be scared of traveling overseas, scared of dedicating their life to dangerous issues. Um, what 
one piece of advice would you give a young woman, for example, watching you and saying, I want to be like Jane, just as you wanted to be like Eleanor Roosevelt. How do you begin this thing, a life of humanitarianism? Thank you for asking that. I actually didn't begin going overseas. I began when I was raising children. I went to volunteer and Head Start classes. I'm, I'm a huge advocate of the Head Start program, early childhood education for children who um, otherwise would start kindergarten having never seen a book. I took my own children with me um, because one thing, the Head, Head Start students were almost all black and I wanted my children to grow up colorblind. So um, I was volunteering and I would take them one at a time and my little blonde children would be playing with uh, the kids in Head Start, some of whom had never sat on a chair and never, you know, they got some, they got food, they got medical care, dental care. Some of them had never used silverware. They'd never had a book. They'd never been held because their mothers were working three and four jobs and, and didn't have the time. And that was some of the most meaningful work. And that's really informed me. I also worked for um, homeless shelters. One started by our church and that's still operating. Our church now has um, dozens of homeless people spending their nights at the church. We can go up and, and of course, I love to talk to them about their stories. Many are mentally ill. Many just had very bad luck, but they're given... Um, food and shelter, lockers to store their things, security, um, and they're, they're forming a community. There's so many things right in your own neighborhood that you can do. You don't have to go overseas looking for people that would benefit from your care. And that's really how I, um, how I began. I've just always been a volunteer, uh, much of it through my faith, as you mentioned, but, um, I just, I have, I've been the beneficiary. I've had a very, very rich life. And uh, I had great joy in writing these stories, as painful as they are. And the photographs um, really show the, the humanity in, in each face. Um, I think, I think I, I, I probably am a little old to go tromping around some of the places that I went before, but I would accept any invitation now. I just think you can't go, you can't go off into a war zone unless you're with, um, at the invitation of a, an organization that really has support and protection on the ground. This is not something I recommend to people. It's not tourism, but um, I was very lucky for all the experiences that I've had as a world citizen.